Would you pray with me? Our God, we know that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Would you help us now to see by that lamp and to follow you in this? We want to walk according to your authority, and so we need your help then to see and to understand. By your spirit, would you bring light to our eyes and hearts? Guide us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. We'll read through the end of the chapter and then a few verses into chapter 12. And they, the they there is the disciples, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then don't you believe in him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent them another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent the son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told them a parable against them. So he left them, or so they left him and went away. This is God's word. If you've been with us now, you know that for a number of months, we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read through them, you'll notice that there is a pattern in the gospels about people's relationship to Jesus, that for some, the ones that know they are sinners, the ones that know they are in need and that they need help, 
those people are drawn to Jesus. They come to him and find mercy. They come to him and find hope. They find help in Jesus. But there are others than in the Gospels. Others who think that they are already holy on their own. And those people push away from Jesus or try to destroy him because they find him threatening or a problem. Now, what we read here is the first of a series of challenges by the people that find Jesus threatening, the the high-level religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And the question that they have here at the beginning in verse 28 is this. By what authority are you doing these things? So they're asking about a particular incident. By what authority are you doing these things? And if you were here with us last time, you'll remember that these things is when Jesus went into the temple and he saw that the court of the Gentiles had been turned into a marketplace. And Jesus was furious at this. What was supposed to be a place where the court of the Gentiles, where the nations could worship God, had been turned into a sales place. And so Jesus calls it uh, an, an empty place of religion, that it's leafy, but there's no fruit on the vine. And so Jesus, in response to this, causes a really big ruckus and starts flipping over tables and pushing people out of the temple. So here in this text, this is now the next day after that. And Jesus is coming back into the temple. Now, yesterday, he'd just been flipping over tables and pushing people out. And so you got to wonder what it looked like the next day. Like, did they fix the tables? Were those things still going on here the next day? But it at least would have been awkward as Jesus comes walking into the temple. Some might have gone, uh-oh, what's he going to do this time? And so the high-level religious authorities then are talking about what he'd done the day before. By what authority then are you turning the temple into disarray? Basically, they're saying, who said you could do all of this? Now, that's a little confusing. We're getting to the answer, and I think this will help us. Jesus responds to this question of who said you could do this in two ways. The first, he talks about John the Baptist, and then the second, He talks about the parable of the tenants. So first, let's look at John the Baptist. And Jesus says, what was the source of authority for John the Baptist? So as he was baptizing, was his authority from heaven or was it from man? So was it from God or was it from not God? And the Pharisees, as they're thinking about how to respond to this, they go, well, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to go, well, why don't you believe him? And if we say it's from man, then the people are going to get really upset because they really believe he's a prophet. And so they just say, we don't know. And so Jesus' response to that is, okay, well, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from either, which sort of makes me chuckle that Jesus is going a little bit of a na-na-na-na. Like, I'm not going to tell you either. But here's an interesting thing in this. As the Pharisees come together to discuss their response to Jesus, you'll notice something. Jesus has now just pushed them on a particular issue. They say, he says, where did John's authority come from? Did it come from heaven or from man? And the Pharisees don't know. But you'll notice they don't say as they gather together, they don't go, hmm. You know, Jesus really does make a good point there. Maybe, you know, maybe John's authority really is from God. 
maybe this Jesus's authority really is from God. The Pharisees don't even stop to consider that possibility at all. Why? The reason for that is because the Pharisees had already decided in their minds who Jesus was. The Pharisees were already trying to make a point. They were already trying to undermine Jesus. And because they had already decided this in their mind, their actions then were not rational, not logical, not reasonable. Culturally, we hear this sort of thing. There are some people who will say that true faith or true religion is not rational. It is not reasonable. And then there's the assumption that to be a skeptic, that's really the reasonable, rational thing to do. And very often, that's just not true. We know this as an example at the end of Matthew. So after Jesus had been killed was in the grave three days and then resurrected. Angels then appeared. The tomb is empty and and the guards that were set outside of the tomb uh, see the angels. They see the tomb empty and then they go back and report this scene to the chief priests and the scribes, the high religious authorities. You see this and this is in Matthew chapter 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed And this story has been spread to the Jews even to this day. So here's what happened. The guards that were placed outside to protect the tomb of Jesus see the tomb empty. They see the angels come, and they tell the chief priests what had happened. And the chief priests, instead of going, what? Jesus must really be God. They pay the guards to lie. They say, make up this story, say the disciples came and stole him, and then that'll fix it. And at the end, when Matthew, he says, some of the Jews even believe that story to this day. They had decided in their minds so firmly that Jesus is not God, that it made them do crazy things. Skepticism is not always the way to go. And because they had already said in their mind to reject Jesus, it affected their hearts, it affected their decisions, it affected their reason. And instead of really seeing, they warped the world to fit their own framework. I hope this is a caution to us also, because Christians are not immune from this. Sometimes we lock ourselves into thinking things are a certain way, and even when the scripture pushes us and says, no, that's not how it is, we tend to push back and go, no, 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 and it makes us do crazy things. Don't we really want to see what's true? Don't we really want to see what's good? Jesus here then, as he tells the story of the tenants then helps us to really see as he's answering, continuing to answer the question 
of authority. In chapter 12 there, he talks about how he's speaking in parables. Now, a parable is a story, a really short story usually, and it's got a, a main point, one big point. And this parable is clearer than some parables are. In fact, it says at the end that the, the religious leaders understood exactly what he was doing, that he was pushing against them. So as we look at the characters in this story of the parable, here, here's the characters. One is, is the man who planted the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard. And in this story, that is God. God the Father is depicted as the owner here. There's also the tenants of the vineyard. So the people who are put in charge of making sure that, you know, we gather all the grapes up and we sell them when we need to sell them. They're the ones who are kind of watching over the garden. Those people are the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. Then we also see the servants that the owner sends to receive the fruit. These are the people that were beaten, killed, and those are the prophets that came and said, this is the way to go, and people did not listen. And then finally, the very last one sent by the owner to the tenants is the owner's beloved son. And the owner says, this time it'll be different. I sent all my servants, and they didn't listen to them. In fact, they beat them, and they even killed some of them. But this is my own child, so surely they're going to respect him And this now is depicted in Jesus, but instead of respecting the beloved son, they also kill him. Now, as Jesus is answering this question of authority, we have to ask as we're looking at this parable, who has authority over the vineyard? Who has control over what's happening in the vineyard? The answer to that ultimately is the owner, the person who, who, who it belongs to. Now, the servants and the ten tenants have some degree of authority. They have some measure of say, but, but that authority is given to them by the owner. The owner says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to take care of it. And at the end, when I have fruit, this, this is part of your job. They are stewards, they are caretakers, if we can call it that. The son's authority is different. It's a greater degree of authority than the tenants because the son is the heir of the vineyard. It's his inheritance in that sense, the vineyard belongs to him. He's not just watching over it, it is his. Now, you'll notice in this parable that even though the owner and the son have authority at the end of verse 1, it says this, the owner leased it to tenants and then the owner went into another country. That's interesting to us because the owner still owns the vineyard, but now he's away. And it's easy to forget while the owner's away that he is still in charge. It's easy to forget that the owner is in charge when he is not right in front of us. And so in those times, then, we think that we have much more power and much more authority than we actually do. While the owner's away and we're taking care of things, we get used to this new normal and we grow to like it and think that we 
own the place. That's when we start to use the word mine. This is my vineyard. This is my house. This is my property. This is my health. This is my safety. This is my choice. It's my theology. It's my church. These are my friends. This is my family. And we forget then that we are tenants, that we're stewards, that we're actually just caretakers and not owners of these things. So we don't have the right to do with them as we please. This is true of everything, even our own bodies. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we're not owners even of ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll start here in verse 17. Paul writes this, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, so flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That one sentence you are not your own, is very disruptive. Because I like to think that I am my own, that I can do what I want with, I, with what I have, at least with my own body. And Paul here says that is not true. Directly then he says this has implications for our sexual lives. If our body is not our own, if someone else owns it, if the Lord owns us, then our sexual lives then even belong to him. By implication, we could say that about other parts of our bodies, that sleep, food, our rhythms of rest and work, none of these are our own. They belong to the Lord. We want to care for our bodies. We want to be caretakers of them because they belong to God. So even if we have a trouble with caring for our own bodies, either because we have some confusion about what that might look like or because we're not able to care for them in the same way that we used to, we want to learn to ask for help then for that and learn to accept help for that, to honor the Lord with our bodies because our bodies are His. It's just like when I was in college, uh, of course, no one has any money, and so we would rent a house, and renting and owning a house is completely different. I mean, if you own a house, you can tear down this wall and paint this thing, and you can put like a fireman's pole into the basement, which I always thought would be really cool. Um, I don't know how you get back out. Uh, I guess you climb up the pole. Now, that's beside the point. But if you own the house, you can do whatever you want with it because it's yours. But if you rent the house... The person that owns it's going to be upset when you put the fireman's pole in. It's a similar sort of thing here. And the tenants who were watching over the vineyard thought the vineyard was theirs, 
when it was not. And so they did something even more extreme than putting in a fireman's pole. They even killed the owner's son. Now, this whole thing is disruptive to us then when the owner shows up because even though he's been in another country for a while and we start to get used to thinking it's our own, when the owner shows up in his son, it's going to disrupt our sense of self-ownership. And so the way we deal with that then is to get rid of the son. Here in this story, they killed the son, but we have our versions of it. We want to push Jesus to the side because we have a vague sense of guilt. We want to push Jesus to the side because he disrupts our own pride. We want to push Jesus to the side because we are greedy people and we want our own ways. That's not trying to make us feel bad. It's just the reality. And so we are very much like the tenants and the builders in trying to reject the authority of the Son. Now, here's the catch. And if you've tuned out, tune back in, because this is the important part. Even though the servants were rejected, even though the Son was killed, that made a very big difference, because here's the line. If an authority is real authority, Rejection will not damage that authority. In fact, it will only serve to display the authority fuller. Let me say that again so we get it. If an authority is really, truly authority, nothing can damage it, not even rejection. In fact, it will only strengthen that authority. You can see what Jesus says this here at the end of the parable. Verse 10, this is sort of the, the punchline of the story, he says. Jesus says, haven't you read this scripture? So here he's quoting from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, you said this stone wasn't important. You got rid of this stone. You're going to try to kill this stone. But as you're getting rid of that stone it's going to become the most important stone, the cornerstone, the capstone, the stone that holds everything together, a stone that cannot be conquered by man, by self, or by Satan. The authority of Jesus will only be strengthened and displayed in his own rejection. Now, if Jesus really has that much authority, if his authority is really that strong, then there are big implications for that. Because for those who reject his authority, you see in the story, the tenants who rejected his authority were destroyed. They thought by destroying the son that they would get to own the vineyard, but the reverse actually happened. That by not following after Jesus, by not following after the beloved son, they put themselves in very serious danger. On the flip side, then, 
What happens for those who actually do follow the authority of Jesus? You can see with Peter and John, we, we talked some about this early in our service. Peter and John, um, this is after the time in Acts 4. This is after the time that Jesus has already been killed, resurrected, and has returned to the Father. And they're walking around preaching and teaching about Jesus, and they see a crippled man by the gate, and, and, and the man says, hey, uh, can you help me? And they heal him, which would be cool. I wish I could do that. But they heal this man, and then it causes all this ruckus. And uh, because then now Peter and John are brought before the religious council, and, and they're asked, how, by what authority did you heal? So this is what happens then in Acts 4. This is their response to that question. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes, they gathered together to Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest family. And then when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This man is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So when they're pushed, by what authority did you heal this man? His answer is basically the Trinity. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the name of Jesus, and by the authority of God the Father that we do this. And this Jesus has become the cornerstone. He's the only source of salvation. And he's going to save bodies and more than that, he will save souls. This Jesus will do something that we cannot do. My favorite part of this, hang on, we're nearing the end here. Verse 13, so Peter has just given this big speech and says, the authority by which I've done all this is by the power of Jesus. Now here's the response of the chief priest, verse 13. Now when they, the chief priests, saw the boldness of Peter and John... And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, they look at these two guys who have just done this amazing thing, who have just spoken with such power and go, but these are normal people. In fact, these people don't really have a whole lot of schooling how could they have so much authority? And it says then at the end, then they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. They carry the very authority of Jesus with them. So now while they're standing, Peter and John are standing in front of these religious leaders who have a high level of earthly authority to put them in jail, to punish them, uh, to beat them, to even possibly have them killed. By the grace of Jesus, Peter then knows that he has a much higher authority, and that makes Peter 
bold, courageous, confident. Don't you want that? Don't you want to follow an authority like that? And even more than just want it, do you follow an authority like that? Do you submit to the authority of Jesus, or do you still think that you have self-ownership? We're reminded in all of this that all things only come by the authority of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, by the grace of Jesus. He is the one who saves us and brings us to himself, and this means everything to us. Because you'll notice that in the story of the tenants, you can see the owner's high level of care for the vineyard. At the very beginning, a man planted a vineyard. He, 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 he put all the seeds in and, and cultivated it so that it would grow. And then he, he put a fence around it to protect it, to guard it. And then he dug a pit for the wine press so that the grapes would be able to be used for the purpose they were intended for. And then he built a tower so that that vineyard could be watched over. Do you hear the owner's level of care for the vineyard? And even though the tenants killed the servants, they killed the son, and then eventually the tenants themselves were, restored, were destroyed, you can see that at the end of all of that, in verse 9, the vineyard still remains. It says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, but he will give the vineyard to others. The owner still cares for the vineyard, but the ones he's given it to, and there are new stewards now, and you have to wonder, are those stewards going to care for that vineyard any differently than the previous tenants did. Ultimately, our confidence is this, that no matter what happens, the owner is still in authority. And even though they killed the son, that even though the sun is the stone that they rejected, the sun will rise as the cornerstone, a stone that is solid, powerful, and a strong foundation for us. This is our God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, the one who owns all things, we know that we are rebellious, that we, like the tenants, have rejected you. Help us then to be changed by your grace so that we come to embrace you, so that we are brought boldness and confidence and courage and power in you to do what you have appointed us to do. Help us then to kneel before your authority so that in the end, you would be the one who are praised. And we give you all thanks and all praise. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.